on today's episode of Heritage Hunters. I was starting to look at things with him and all of a sudden a voice came into my head and said, tell him that we're very proud of him. Tell him I'm very proud. Tell him I know about his music. Tell him that he's the realization of our dreams. Quakers owned slaves until the late 1700s when they finally got together in, in Philadelphia and decided they weren't going to do that anymore. That's putting your face to the dark side of the past of your family. It's really bringing that stuff to light because a lot of this stuff has been buried in like the newspapers and files at the library and until somebody goes digging for it, it's just forgotten. I really like to bring Southern stories back to life. People, when they hear the word witch or witchcraft, they think of the Salem witch trials. I don't think many people realize that there was actually a witch trial here in Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. Thank you for joining us for our Halloween episode of Heritage Hunters. Tonight, we'll hear a few spooky stories. And as always, be sure to add your own in the comments section or by emailing us at the number two, heritage-hunters at gmail.com. Joining us is Carolyn Nalachlan from the Paper to People podcast. This evening, Carolyn Nalachlan joins us and she has a spooky genealogy story for us. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you very much. How long have you been researching your family? 42 years. You live in New York. Yeah, in New York. Born and raised. Oh, I've lived other places. I'm sitting in the living room of the family home. There's this weird fact in my work. Although I get thrown hints, like from random times and places, all of a sudden a photograph will show up. Um, somebody will say, I think I have a photograph from your family tree because my ancestry tree is public. And mm -hmm. they said, I think this is your great-grandfather. I was like, yes, actually it is. And they scanned it and then sent it to me. It's a good thing that they sent it after they scanned it because it got broken in the mail. It's this wonderful picture. And it started me on the path of all kinds of research on him. So I have those kinds of events that happen, but I don't really have the super unexplained stuff in my own family. I do something that I call reparational genealogy. I personally don't have the funds to 
provide a scholarship or to do a lot of other things that I would like to do in the way of reparations, but I can use the skills that I have to build competent online trees for people to get them started if they are descendants of enslaved persons or free persons of color. So periodically, I'll just work a lot on one tree and then I'll just switch over to another for a little while. I get these impulses where it's like, okay, I need to go back to that tree that I haven't touched in a year and look at this. It's not even that the person for whom the tree is being made has given me the impulse. It is that somehow it just comes up, a name will come up and I will remember these names. And so it'll be like, oh, I really need to go look at the Whitney's. Okay, let me go back to that tree. And I do end up finding more stuff. But what happens in this one particular instance, and it has happened before and since, is I was in this room, in my living room at my desk, and I was working. I was messaging on Facebook with a woman for whom I'm doing some tree work. As I was working in the records, I was just asking her a couple of questions to make sure that I was going in the right direction. All of a sudden, there was a consciousness of three people, three women, standing over to my right. It looked like if you made like a jello mold out of hot glue. That's what it looked like in the corner of my eye. But then in my mind's eye, I started to get clearer features. So I'm messaging her this and I'm saying, there are three women in the room with me. Two of them are really clear, one's not, she's smaller and I can't identify her, but this other one I think is so and this one is such and such. And these were women who were enslaved and living in the post-slavery era of reconstruction. She said, what are they wearing? And I said, they're wearing full-length cotton dresses. Two out of three of them, I can tell that they're wearing aprons. She said, are they wearing headscarves? And I said, yes, one of them is checked and the other one isn't. She was just, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So we were having conversation around this and all of a sudden, as these three women were in the room with me, I started being able to find all these records and these cousins and their spouses and their descendants and stuff like that. And the tree was fleshing out really fast. I do these kind of quick and dirty trees. I don't go to archives to work on people's trees physically. I just do these online trees and then say, okay, here's your homework. You need to find the following documents and you need to work with these people on Freedmen's Bureau records and I recommend people and things like that. So she very quickly got a tree that went back something like five generations. I always say I don't tree, I shrub because I do all of the people in each generation. I go completely sideways on each generation, get all of the spouses of the siblings, then come all the way down to the present day on them. Then I go up a generation and, on, and that's the way you're supposed to do it. So it, it's more of a weeping willow than it is a pine tree. And so that experience with her was really amazing. There was one other one, it was the first time that I really had this. And when this happens, I have this strange sort of weepy sensation and I can feel them coming in. It's not being sad because being sad feels completely different. It's just this emotional reaction to their presence it may even be their emotions playing through me. I'm not really sure. I'm not really clear on that at all. And 
In this other time, I was working on this guy's tree. He was really hesitant and he was like, I'm not really sure. Do I want to do this or don't I? I know I'm going to find enslavement. And I'm like, look, you're black in America. Chances are very good you're going to find enslavement, but you're going to find other things as well. That's the thing that we don't know about. And so he said, okay, we were on Messenger on Facebook and I was starting to look at things with him. And all of a sudden, a voice came into my head and said, tell him that we're very proud of him. Tell him I'm very proud. Tell him I know about his music. Tell him that he's the realization of our dreams. So I told him this, and I didn't really know that he was a musician. It turns out that, in fact, he is. That was pretty amazing. And he was a non-believer walking into this set of DMs. And the DMing stopped for a couple of seconds. Like, there was a noticeable freeze. I was like, are you okay? His response was, this is a lot. I said, I know, it, it is a lot, obviously. Later, when we went through, we figured out who that was. That was his second great-grandmother, I believe. The way that it played out was that woman was born enslaved. She ended up renting and then buying the land that she sharecropped on as that she had, would, had worked as an enslaved person. She put all of her children through school, and you can see on the census records, the eldest, the eldest child only gets to about sixth grade. And then the next child in line gets to about eighth or ninth. And then the child after that graduates from high school. And then the next generation, people move north and get master's degrees and doctoral degrees. It's all because of this one woman. And she was the person who was speaking to me saying to this man, you're the realization of our dreams. I know you, I see you, I'm aware of you, and thank you for finding me, that kind of thing. Those are really amazing experiences, and I was just telling my brother-in-law today about this. He's been doing genealogical research off and on, maybe as long as I have, but he's not that serious about it the way that I am, I would say. He doesn't do any work for other people, he just works on his own tree. If you're familiar enough with the work, you start to get people coming through and you start to get to know the people you're working on. You get to know the ancestors of the people for whom you're doing work. And sometimes I end up knowing them better than I know my next door neighbor or some of my own relatives. And it sounds crazy, but I develop relationships with these people who are gone, these people who are waiting. I have a personal belief that other people may not share, and that is that the universe is a closed system of energy and spiritual energy hangs around. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just get obliterated. So these people are hanging out and they want to be found. And I don't know what my brother-in-law believes, but I was telling him about this and he was like, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. And I'm like, I wouldn't be telling you this if it hadn't happened. And he's like, okay. So I know there are people out there who think that it's a made-up thing or something like that. Then again, I know about people who do believe in spiritual gifts. I believe that this is something that I am able to hook into. I don't know whether everybody else is or not. This doesn't really matter. I believe that these things will continue to happen. I think that's when people on the other side are just like, oh, awesome. She's really paying attention. Let's get her attention and tell her what we want to have passed on. The almost seeing of people is the part that's really amazing. And I had to let it get to a point where I didn't get freaked out by it.
because the first time it happened, it was scary. And now it's just, oh, okay, it's people coming through. That's cool. So that's that amazing. amazing. I love it. My own story is I was killing some time one day. I, so I drove into a cemetery where I knew some of my ex-husband's family were buried. And the cemetery is quite large. And the people I was looking for, I happened to pull up and park right next to where they were. I got out of my car and they were right there and I was shocked beyond belief. But I agree, it's like sometimes when you're working on your genealogy, you just get pulled in a certain direction. And I think that's guidance from beyond. So Hope, I don't know that we've never talked about that really. Did you have anything like that ever? Not that specific. Sometimes it's just like you feel like, like one time I'm looking for a book that has my family. Haven't found it in years. And it's okay, you need to sign on to this website today kind of thing. And they had it in stock, had the book I wanted, and it was a, a price I could actually afford. But it was something I'd look for and then put it out of my mind. And then something was just like, oh, you need to go to this website today and go look for this book. And it was there. I really believe in we put it out into the universe and we get it back for sure. I love that you are doing this, what you're calling reparational genealogy. I think that's absolutely amazing. And what made you think of, to do something like that? My first people arrived on this continent from England to colonize Jamestown. They were here in time for the ships that brought over the brides because they came over with a cousin who was an intended bride and may have come over slightly before that. So they were certainly here for the Powhatan War in 1622. So I'm guessing that they came over first around about 1620. And then I have three direct line Mayflower passengers, and then a bunch of cousins. My last people arrived here in 1830, 1835, somewhere in there from Ireland. So I have these really deep roots in colonizing this country. That means that basically my genealogy is cake to do. There are records everywhere. It is not a problem. And I'm LDS. And so I have the, what we call the calling, which is basically an unpaid job. <laughs> I have the unpaid job of being a temple and family history consultant. Basically that means it's my gig to teach people how to use family search, how to use ancestry, that kind of stuff, how to use them together because we have some unique things that as members of the church we can do that non-members can't do and how to write biographies, all that stuff. And I realized when I came back out to New York in 2014, having lived in the Midwest, which was all white, I came back out here and my ward was half Latin American. And of course I don't speak Spanish because I wasn't smart enough to take Spanish. As I was watching, I realized nobody is teaching any of the people who are Latin American how to do any kind of research on their families. And yet the requirement of do your work and go to the temple and do all the things that we do as members of the church was constantly being banged into people's heads. How do you do that? How do you bang into people's heads that they need to be doing A, but the thing that enables A, you completely ignore? Well, that got me mad. And when I get mad, I do something. So I just realized this has to change. I talked to the bishop and I said, 
can we have a bilingual class? And he said, sure. So-and-so has volunteered to translate. And it was the first time anybody taught anybody in the room. There were 20 people clustered around me and I was teaching through this guide and they were just so grateful. I went home and I was looking at my tree and, and I was like, anybody who my family enslaved, they don't necessarily have much of anything in the way of record. They need things like wills and inventories and stuff like that in order to be able to put things together along with census records and whatever else, birth, marriage, divorce, all that stuff. And when I realized that I was so highly privileged because of being 100% Northern and Western European, I got mad again. And I realized that the thing to do is to find out how to rectify this and to create social justice within the realm of genealogy. So I just started talking to people about it and started doing work. And I worked on a friend's tree. He's also a cousin through an enslaver here in Huntington in the town that I come from. And that was when it just started to fall together. And I realized I wanted to teach everybody who's in my church to do the same thing. Of course, that hasn't worked because, <laughs> because that would be great. But in the meantime, I think I've lit a couple of fires here and there. It's what I talk about in my podcast and it's the crux of the work that I do. It's probably 75% of what I do. And can you let our listeners know what the podcast title is? That is called From Paper to People, and you can find it absolutely any place. I also have a YouTube channel. I'm hoping to do a Halloween episode of my own about witchcraft and, and how it's it was used throughout the centuries and throughout millennia to other women. Next, we'll hear from John Brantley from the Curious History YouTube channel. Thank you so much for being here tonight and spending oh, some pleasure. time with me. Mm -hmm. And my pleasure. I really enjoy your YouTube channel. And one of the biggest questions I have is are a lot of these places that you go to, are they relatives of yours or are they just interesting cemeteries that you've happened upon? I've done a couple cemetery videos, two of which are extremely important to my own genealogy and the first video that i made i'm a child of adoption so when i was at the, the cemetery in hanoverton ohio that was the very first time i ever stood at the graveside of a biological family member so that was that was pretty important and then the other one where i visited a quaker cemetery in Barnesville, Ohio, that again, those were all biological ancestors, 80 biological Quakers buried in one cemetery. So going from knowing nothing about my my history to knowing almost everything was is quite a jump. What inspired you to come up with this particular YouTube channel? It was really a 
circumstantial kind of thing. When when the pandemic hit and everybody suddenly got some free time on their hands, I started on the journey of trying to figure out who my biological, my DNA relatives were and was very successful in that endeavor. Then I decided to go look to see if there was anybody in the state that was buried in the state that I could find their grave. And I decided to document that. And that led into a full-blown YouTube channel with over 15,000 subscribers and so forth. It was really just me going out there and documenting something for my own posterity and for my family. It caught on and took off from there. Do you have any particular videos that are your favorite that you've produced? The very first one, it's called Ancestors, Ghosts, and Runaway Slaves. That and is a, the video that's in Hanoverton, Ohio. I was wondering if that was your, your personal family history. It is. When my son and I were on that trip together, we walked up into this little out-of-the-way cemetery called Arger Methodist Cemetery. And it is not the predominant cemetery in the town of Hanoverton. It's actually like a mile out of town. And I don't think that there are any newer burials there, but it's still kept nice. It's still mowed and landscape, but it's, there's no parking. You have to find a place on a county road to pull over and walk up in the woods to find it. And walking up there, I stood at the grave of William Nicholas, who was my five times great grandfather. That was the very first time in my life that I ever stood at the gravesite of somebody who I was DNA related to. How are you feeling about that? Were you excited? Were you feeling very connected? What were your thoughts? That's a good question. I think overwhelmed is the, the biggest word that I can say. Uh, when you grow up as an adopted child, at least in my perspective, tend to have a lot of unanswered questions about yourself. And for me, at least, there was always a slight disconnect between myself and the people who are my family, the people who raised me. And to go on a journey to find biological relatives and to meet those people. And I have met, you know, basically both sides of my biological family at this point. But to go that route and start looking back on the history of my blood relatives and who they are and what they did and what made them tick and what brought them to America, all of that going from nothing to that is a very overwhelming feeling. I got a chance to stand there at the grave for a while, just myself. My son was off to the side setting up the camera and shots and things like that. And got to think to myself a little bit about what this moment meant to me, which is both a closure and an opening, if you will. Closure to the thoughts of the past of not knowing who I was or where I came from or not really feeling like I fit in to all of a sudden opening a door to a whole new perspective. So overwhelming, quite. Do you think it's fair to say you've been bitten with the genealogy bug? Yeah, I think so. You spend time, once you find out who your family is, uh, who your blood relatives are, and start looking back and you're able to uncover more and more history. It's exciting 
to go through that process of calling family members who have documents to going on to Ancestry.com to doing a 23andMe DNA. It's exciting to go through that whole process. And again, to go from not knowing anything to all of a sudden tracing one of your bloodlines back to William Longsword. I mean, it, it doesn't get any more surreal than that for me. Then to take a look at the historical aspects of things too, you start to uncover the good and the bad in everything. When I was looking at William Nicholas, for instance, in the first video, he was a Revolutionary War soldier and made his life. He and his father and that whole part of the family immigrated to the United States and landed in Bucks County, PA. And William fought for the American side and served under General George Washington. White Plains, New York. That kind of stuff is stuff that really hits home to you, the patriotic side. And then you take a look at the Quaker side, which is the other video, which is 80 Quakers buried, eight biological relatives buried in a Quaker cemetery. And you think Quakers, pacifists, there's nothing bad really in their history. And then you find out that Quakers, as were many, if not most people in the early United States time, were also slave owners. The Quakers owned slaves until the late 1700s when they finally got together in, in Philadelphia and decided they weren't going to do that anymore. That's putting your face to the dark side of the past of your family. Then you can go back generations from there and see heartache and hardship all throughout Europe. But again, when you start uncovering those things, those little tidbits, and you keep following that path down the road, it's it's quite an amazing thing. Where in Bucks County was your ancestor located? Because we, we're in Bucks County. I don't have that quite down yet. The records that I have basically just say Bucks County. I haven't been able to pinpoint. William Nicholas was born in 1758 in Ben Salem, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And that and is... He, he, that, that is, is the my five times great grandfather. A plan of mine is to head over to Bucks County at some point in time and see if there's anything to see. William Nicholas, his father was also named William Nicholas. He was born in England in 1721, I don't know where. And it says that he died after 1790 in Bucks County. And I'm going to assume, because I don't have any other way to go at this point, I'm going to assume that he is probably in that cemetery in Ben Salem. So that's who I would be looking for, is William Nicholas sometime after 1790 is his death. So you've been doing this only since the pandemic? Yes, I have. So as far as actively searching, everything just fell in my lap as far as that goes. But when I was born, I was put up for adoption through a private doctor, not through an adoption agency, which was not out of the ordinary for the late 1960s. And my adopted mother had some documents that had my biological mother's name and her place of residence where she was living when I was born. I had some relatives in Southern California that found those documents, went to the house, knocked on the door, found my biological aunt, and it all just happened from there. This was the early 1990s. 
And I was able to get on a plane in 1991 and fly to San Diego and spend Christmas with my biological mother and met my half-biological siblings and really called it good from there. Then I took a DNA test on 23andMe because we wanted to know any of the health aspects that were related to my DNA. I found my biological half-brother on my father's side that way and it opened that door too. That was in 2015, when all of those doors kicked themselves open, because there was really nothing I was doing on my own. It became obvious that I needed to sit down and try and fill the void in myself by getting answers to who these people are and where they came from. That's when I really began to actively search, but it wasn't until the pandemic that I decided now's a good time because my job was on. Now would be a good time for me to see if there's anybody in Ohio that I am biologically related to that might be buried. And found a couple and headed down south to Hanoverton and found the first one. Then everybody on my wife's side of the family wants to know about their genealogy. So I was able to start opening some doors for them and find out how many kings and queens of England and Scotland they are related to. And it's become a real fascinating experience for us. And there are other people that I've helped with their, their genealogy. So once you start to understand how all of those processes work, whether it's DNA or it's ancestry or it's heritage or whatever site you're gonna use, contacting family members, especially ones that are older that might retain documents that people don't even know about. Then you're really able to help a lot of people get some answers that they need. What kind of advice do you have for cemetery investigators? Findagrave.com is a really good resource. I'm sure there's a lot of people that use that to find specific people in cemeteries. Sometimes a lot of that information though is incomplete. Depending on the cemetery, you might get lucky with a plot number or a grave location, but a lot of cemeteries don't necessarily give that information. At that point, then you really need to contact the city in which that cemetery resides and see if the city has any of that information. And oftentimes they do. Some cities maintain their own plot burial information and they don't allow the city cemeteries to hold that information. So you have to contact City Hall. And that's been a huge help. The city that I live in has given me access due to their cemetery information that is not public access, it has to be requested. But because of what I do, and they've seen the channel, and we've spoken several times, they've given me the opportunity to help people along through those searches too. I can go onto their site and get plot information, which is nice. They're very gracious to let me do that for them. But again, um, Find a grave is good if there's no plot information other than just wandering around or stopping in at whatever uh, whatever place might be open in the cemetery. If anybody's watching the cemetery, you might be able to get lucky and get a map or a listing of some sort, but certainly reach out to the city that the cemetery is in and they can help you. I wouldn't recommend going into a private ceremony, uh, cemetery without permission, first of all. That's very important. There is a cemetery in Northeast Ohio that nobody knows exists anymore. It is terribly overgrown. 
and it is tucked away behind some industrial buildings at a major intersection in the city of Akron. And there is a Revolutionary War grave in that cemetery. So we did a Revolutionary War video on July 4th this year, and that's on the it's on YouTube, where we visited three grave, three cemeteries that had Revolutionary War veterans buried. And one of them was that cemetery. It has got a barbed wire fence around it, so nobody will go in, but it's totally overgrown. You can barely make out any markers. So you got to be careful what you're walking in. There are certainly holes that you can step in and maybe some animals you don't want to encounter. But if you go, if you have your eye on a private cemetery, first and foremost, find out who owns the land and get permission before you venture on. What have you found to be the most exciting part of what you do? I have gained an extraordinary community of subscribers. The people that, that are engaged in our channel are some of the most wholesome, sweetest, kindest people you will ever meet, open-minded to the core. A, a lot of people like just a straight historical video. So it's not just genealogical videos we're doing, although everything when it comes to history is somebody's genealogy in some form. I would imagine you could stretch it that far. But we also do a little bit of a paranormal twist at times. If there's anybody who's said, hey, that place is haunted, or I've seen a ghost wandering or whatever, we pay honor to that and at least report that has happened or that there are reports of that. Whether you believe it or not is completely up to you and there's no judgment from me either way. But, but the people that I have encountered, the support, the goodwill, that has been probably the most unexpected and the most thrilling thing about what's going on with the channel right now. Is your son interested in what you're doing or is he just along for the ride in an extra hand? He, at one point in time, so this is great for him too. He's known his mother's side of the family and her history to a point, although we have opened a lot of eyes on my wife's side and family as to their lineage, for sure. But it was an exciting thing for him too, to come along this ride. I was doing these videos all on my own, just me and an iPhone and a gimbal, walking around and talking at my phone and making videos. And my son is a professional photographer and a videographer and an editor and just everything. One day I was trying to frame a shot in one of the videos and I asked for his opinion and he said, Dad, do you want me just to help? Because I would be glad to help. And he didn't want to step on my toes. He wanted me to do the thing that I love to do for me. But at that point he offered and I said yes. And now he is my full-time videographer, videographer and editor. And he's such a tremendous guy. I love him to death. I'm so proud of him. And whenever we go out and film videos weekly, and he rides along with me and I give him a copy of the, the talking points and the script and the Bolton points ahead of time so he can get an idea of what we're doing. But I think it's been a good experience for him too, to not just live in the now and not just look to the, you need to know about the past and what has happened in order to carve your way into the future without making the mistakes that have happened in the past. He's very keen on that. So we have, we have enjoyed a great time together doing this. And I think the world of my son, he's a fantastic human being. What would be the, what would be your, the best project you could ever do? I have to get to Gettysburg. We visited Gettysburg in 2006. We were on our way back from Ocean City, Maryland, 
family vacation. And we stopped in Breezewood to spend the night. And Gettysburg is just an hour away. I am a Civil War history buff. And this was way before we even had any thoughts whatsoever of doing any kind of video or documentation or anything like that. And the story of our country and the story of Gettysburg has always been something near and dear to my heart. Uh, Gettysburg has been way overdone by a whole lot of people, some good, some not so good. I would like to get my opportunity to go there and explore the things in Gettysburg that aren't necessarily on the beat path and to see more of the downtown and take a look at what the people in the town had to go through during that during that battle, not just the people who were involved in the battle itself. So we are making plans to get down to Gettysburg and take a look at that. I may have a relative who fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, and if that's the case, then that would be the primary focus of it for sure, but uh, certainly what the townspeople went through, how their lives were, what made them tick. That would be a cherry on top for me right now. My better half used to be a Civil War reenactor. And I know mm. he's done a couple of reenactments out at Gettysburg. The thing about reenactors is that these are the people that are keeping history alive. Uh, you can talk about high school or college professors or historians all you want to. But the people who are actually reenacting exactly what it was like in the era that they're representing are the people that are keeping tangible, tactile history alive for us to smell and see and touch and taste. Those people need to be celebrated, the people who do that. So kudos to your better half for what he was doing. That is absolutely awesome. Joining us is Joy Neighbors, the author of Wicked Greenville. We have with us today Jennifer Stoy, and Jennifer has a book called Wicked Greenville. I went to Barnes and Noble and saw it. That's oh so my gosh, cool. how exciting. <laughs> it was really cool. It was oh, on sorry, the table with all the local books. It was very cool. You went to Barnes and Noble and you found your book on display yes. with all these local historic. Oh my gosh, how exciting would that I be? I a picture like a big nerd in the store. Oh, <laughs> I would have done the same thing. Your book has many weird true crime tales in it from the Revolutionary War period. Yes, all the way up to the 1940s. Of course, genealogy played a huge part, which it always does, I think, when anybody's writing any true crime, because you want to dive into who these people were. There was one, a guy named Hugh Bramlett actually, shot his mother-in-law in 1919. And then at his trial, it was deemed that he was insane. And they actually, in the trial, brought out witnesses to confirm that in his family tree, uncles, grandfathers, really far back were all insane. So I thought that was really strange for 1919. They're getting into the genealogy stuff on the stand. The doctor called it delusional. At that time, it was like the terms were a little bit different, but it was like delusions and Eventually, he got off actually for that, and then the wife actually got back together with him. 
after he shot her mother. And then they inevitably separated at some point, and then he ended up getting arrested for a minor charge. I think he was drunk or evading arrest or something, and he ended up hanging himself in his cell at the Greenville Hill. That was a wild ride. And then there's an area called Dark Corner, which is famous for bootlegging and making moonshine during the time of prohibition. It was interesting to get, look into those families and find out that pretty much they were all related somehow. <laughs> or they married their cousins or they were married to this family. It was a lot of intermarriages and families. So that was pretty cool. And then a major story was the sheriff. His name was Hendricks Rector and he was killed in 1919 on July 4th by somebody that had been his deputy. And then his brother, Carlos Rector, wanted to be the sheriff, but he was overlooked for this other guy, Sam Willis. Sam Willis ended up being shot. And then Carlos Rector became sheriff. A couple years later, they found out that Carlos Rector was behind the murder of Sam Willis. What is your connection to Greenville? I live here. I've been here since 2009. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but I moved to the South in 2009 and I love it here. So, it's pretty awesome in the South, isn't it? Yeah, Greenville's really become my home and I just love this place. I love telling Southern stories and kind of these quirky, strange, weird little right. things I find. How long have you been doing genealogy? I've been doing it for probably about 12 years, but professionally for about two. So I actually have a client right now that has a very interesting, weird story. So his, who he thought was his great grandfather was a bootlegger that was shot and killed in 1888. And then he recently found out through DNA that that guy's not his great grandfather. So it's this other guy. So he confirmed it. He got a bunch of other people to take tests and stuff like that. And they all confirmed that this other man, this other individual is actually the father of that of his grandfather, but we don't know. I'm trying to find out more about him, but the circumstances of that union, um, if it was a romantic thing or if it was something other, we'll probably won't ever find out. I did find out that that guy's grandparents lived really close to that woman. So I made that sort of census connection. So he was right. definitely around. That was a reason for him to possibly be around that area. But what the circumstances were, I'm not sure if we'll ever find out. Or if she even knew, or maybe she thought this other, the bootlegger was the father. I have no idea. So. What sort of resources do you have available to you in Greenville? I've got the Greenville Library, which has a really big genealogy room, which is really great. And also the South Carolina Library, which is in at USC in Columbia. And the State Archives, which is in Columbia as well. That's the capital. So they have really good resources there, like court records and things like that. And then, of course, the local uh, courthouses. It depends on what county some of these counties have. This particular case is Lancaster County, South Carolina. So I've been down there in their genealogy room, which is really good. What got you interested in pursuing these ideas for your book? It was funny because I knew History Press did these wicked books. They have a series and they have Wicked Charleston and Wicked St. Augustine and these other places. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do a Wicked Greenville? 
but I thought, surely there's not enough material. I don't know if it's possible, but then when I started looking into it, I realized that there was probably more material than I could actually put in the book. So. I actually started doing a video series on Bucks County's dark history is what I called it. And I only got two done before I got super busy again. So I would like to go back to doing that because they were a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's really bringing that stuff to light because a lot of this stuff has been buried in like the newspapers and files at the library. And until somebody goes digging for it, it's just forgotten. I really like to bring Southern stories back to life. And I love true crime. I've been a true crime fan since I was a teen. So we started with the Anne Rule books and then never looked back. Out of all the stories that you've written about, what's your favorite? I think in this book, my favorite's probably Maddie Hughes. She was a, <laughs> a woman that shot her husband about 1890. And she went on trial three times, and she was apparently one of the most beautiful women in South Carolina. She was acquitted all three times. And the newspapers, I couldn't find any pictures of her. It was driving me insane. I wanted to find a photo. But the papers described everything like that she wore in court, which seemed like lavish, like widows. She played the like weeping widow to a T. So she was acquitted, and then she lived for a while on Main Street in Greenville and then got in trouble again for running a bordello. Then she skipped town. She was often seen walking around town in men's clothes. So maybe she was in disguise or I don't know, she had some kind of alter ego. And she eventually moved to Washington State and died in some kind of asylum. But she lived for a long time. She showed up in the papers again being robbed and she had a boyfriend and her father was shot during some robbery. She appeared in the papers again late in her life, had a sad ending. But that was really a fun one because some people that were helping me with the book, they didn't know that one. So it's fun when you bring a new one to these people that are the experts in town. <laughs> Have you written any other books? No, this is my first book. I've toyed with other ideas over the years, but this is my first published book. I've got ideas for the next one, but I haven't really done too much on it yet, but it does involve, it's a local story. It's actually in Greenwood, not too far from here. 1800s, a guy shot his brother. So it was a love triangle situation. It's gonna be a nonfiction and gothic. My husband and I are actually working on a documentary right now. So we've taken on a completely different project. This one involves a lot of genealogy too. This is a documentary about the Armstrongs. They were an African-American family of magicians that toured around the South in the early 1900s during the Jim Crow era. For African-Americans, it wasn't easy, but it was also the golden age of magic. So you had Houdini and Thurston and Keller and all these incredible greats, larger than life. This family was just as talented as these greats and they were relegated to performing in black schools and universities and churches and doing that circuit. There is some stuff available about them, but a lot of it is misinformation. We've actually going to correct a lot of that. So I've actually got a couple of prominent African-American magicians that are working today that are helping me 
and a couple historians and people that have some of their props and scrapbooks. One of their scrapbooks is at South Carolina Library. It's their family papers. It's been interesting because African-American genealogy at that time is very difficult. <laughs> John Hartford Armstrong, the father, his father was white and his mother was black. He would have been probably the first born free because she would have been born in about 1850. He was born in 74. We've been really hitting it hard trying to figure out his origins. It's been a challenge, but I think it's a story worth telling. And I think it'll be cool on film because magic should be seen. Have you networked with production companies, like that kind of thing? We're pretty much doing it independently. My husband's a photographer, so he's doing all the cinematography. We're doing all the grant applications and all that stuff. And we've got fiscal sponsorship and we're calling all the local foundations and stuff and trying to raise funds. And then we went to Arkansas in May because this guy, Michael Claxton, he's a professor at Harding University and he actually is a big magic collector and he has Armstrong props and scrapbooks that he rescued, and some of them literally came from the trash. We've been pouring through those for little clues, and we went up and met with him and stayed there for a week. Where do you apply for grants? Is it through your through the state or through historical associations? We've done a few. The Society of American Magicians, SAM, they had an endowment fund, so they gave us some money for historical stuff. One of the magicians that's working with me, his name is Ice McDonald. He's, he was the former president of the International Magicians Bureau. He's working on getting money from their endowment fund. And then he's also involved with the Magic Castle in LA. So we're gonna hit them up. Every other filmmaker is applying for the same thing, but we're, we've also tried more local outreach. They actually lived in Spartanburg the Armstrongs did, which is like 30 minutes for me. That's why I was drawn to this story too. So we've talked, the Spartanburg County Foundation, they seem pretty keen to give us some money. We did their whole process and we're waiting to hear back. South Carolina Humanities, we've talked to them. And then I'm gonna try and talk to Pepsi because they're born in the Carolinas and get some sponsorships. The majority of it is gonna be archival material and all the licensing that goes with that. There's a little bit of travel involved, but we've got a magician that's actually coming down from Philadelphia. <laughs> Randy Shine is his name. And he's gonna recreate some of the Armstrong tricks. You just gotta keep doing it and be positive and don't give up. And it's amazing that uh, I'm still pinching myself that I managed to get this book done. I love that you're bringing to life everything in your little town and sharing the experiences so everybody else can enjoy it too. Yes, weirdgenealogy.com. I love it. And then the website for the documentary is magicalarmstrongs.com. Do you have a GoFundMe or a Patreon for your project? Not yet. We're, we had a little crowdfunding thing. We will be doing another one. It's okay. We have a fiscal sponsor. It's from the Heart Productions, so we can take donations from them. They're our fiscal sponsor and they support films that they feel contribute to society. So we're very blessed to be part of that family. We'll be doing some crowdfunding as we get closer to, hopefully I wanna cut another trailer with some of the interview clips and some footage that we're shooting, some of the local footage and stuff like that. Once that's done, we'll have something to show for people to do some more crowdfunding.
Our final guest today is Robert Phoenix, a Pennsylvania German Brauerei. My name is Robert Phoenix, and I'm a practitioner of Pennsylvania German Brauerei. Thank you so much for being here today, Robert. I wanted to get your expertise on the Remeyer case. I people, when they hear the word witch or witchcraft, they think of the Salem witch trials. I don't think many people realize that there was actually a witch trial here in Pennsylvania in the 1900s. It's a, an amazing story, very well known locally. It's still talked about today, almost 100 years ago. So 1928, just outside of York, Pennsylvania, there was a powwower named Nelson Raymeyer. A powwow is a, a Christian folk healer in German and Pennsylvania German culture. And there was another local young man named John Blymeyer, and he felt that he had a curse on him, that his life had been cursed. And he traveled over to Marietta in Lancaster County and met with the local witch known as the River Witch of Marietta named Nellie Knoll. She had confirmed to him that he did have a curse on him and that the curse was put on him by powwower Nelson Raymeyer. And that in order to break the curse, he would have to get a lock of Nelson's hair and a copy of Nelson's spell book his copy of The Long Lost Friend, which was a powwow manual, and bury them six feet underground and the curse would be removed. John Blymeyer got uh, two young boys, John Curry and Wilbert Hess, to go over to Raymeyer's house with him. This is late November, 1928. And Nelson knew them, he let them in. They were friendly, they were on friendly terms. They talked for a while and then the boys attacked him to get a lock of his hair and they ended up beating him to death and they never did get his book they tried to set the house on fire to cover up their tracks the fire immediately went out and they were arrested just the next day the trial was huge worldwide news and it really drew a lot of attention to pennsylvania and the pennsylvania german culture and this practice of powwowing and it really had long-lasting repercussions on the tradition so this one event where you had involved a witch a local witch a local powwower, the idea of curses and hexes and murder. It's an interesting story, a fantastic story, but it really had a lot of repercussions on the folk magic tradition lasting to this day. Germans actually brought the folk magic over with them from Germany in the early 1600s, correct? Yes, correct. And these traditions are passed down from generation to generation. Does it still pervade the Amish and Mennonite societies? Amish and Mennonite, not so much, but the non-Anabaptist Pennsylvania Dutch or the Pennsylvania Germans, like the Lutherans, the Reformed, even some Catholics, we're still doing it. It's still very much practiced, but it had gone underground for 60 or 70 years because of that Raymeyer incident. But now it's back and it's widely accepted. It's a socially acceptable form of folk magic, healing. Are there any descendants from those people that are still living today? Yeah, there sure are. So Nelson's grandson still owns the house. And then John Blymeyer, the guy who led the boys over there to commit murder, his great nephew 
is still alive. He's a young guy in his 30s, lives locally. So there are still descendants of the family. And Rainmeyers were a huge family. There were just tons of Rainmeyers. So there's still descendants all over this area. Do you personally know any of them? I know Wes Blymeyer and I've met and talked with Ricky Eba, who is the descendant of Nelson Raymeyer. A lot of us worked together about 10 years ago on a documentary about the whole incident called Hex Hollow. That hmm. we are all used to each other through that project. But I highly recommend that Hex Hollow. It's called Hex Hollow Witchcraft and Murder in Pennsylvania. It's a fantastic documentary. If you have that channel, Tubi, T U B I, it's a free channel. It's on there for free. What do the descendants have to say about what happened? What are their feelings on it? It's an agreement, unanimous agreement, that Nelson Raymeyer did not put a curse on John Blymeyer. He was a good guy. He was helpful to his community, animals, people, whatever. If they were sick or needed help, he was right there to help them with his powwowing. John Blymeyer, his descendants know, know that he had a lot of mental issues. He had a lot of problems. And unfortunately, the River Witch of Marietta, history is too kind to her. They haven't. Nobody's really talking much about her, but she sent him over. She sent John Blymeyer to Nelson Raymeyer's house, and that ended up in murder. It's tragic. What, what I had read about her is that she didn't actually name Nelson as the person that John needed to go to. Apparently, she laid a bill in his hand and said when she took the bill away, he would see the face of the person who it was who put the curse on him. And John Blymeyer believed he saw Nelson's face. And then she said, go over there and get a lock of his hair and his spell book and bury it six feet under. It was all bad all around. Nothing good was going to come out of that. I had also read some of the newspaper articles from the time after this particular incident that a little bit of a witchcraft hysteria had stirred up in the community. Do you have any thoughts on that? It is true up in Schuylkill County, Columbia County, there were a couple of incidents where neighbors or I believe it was in Columbia County, somebody shot their neighbor because they believed she put a curse on him. In Schuylkill County, somebody went after a neighbor because he believed she was turning into a cat at night and attacking her. So there were a couple of little seismic disturbances after the main event. And then because it brought such national attention was brought on Pennsylvania and everybody thought, who are these idiots that believe all these superstitions? The powwows went underground and everybody just kept it quiet. And now you still have people who say, I know my great grandfather was a powwower, but we're not allowed to talk about it in my family. That's what we're dealing with today as a result of that Nelson Raymeyer murder. It's amazing it still has repercussions a hundred years later. What happened to the gang after they were released from prison? Because I know they didn't do very long time. No, they didn't. John Curry, I think he was the youngest one. And I might be getting this wrong, but I believe he became an artist and went into the military and really became something like a little bit of a war hero and just became an all around good person. Wilbert Hess, he worked for some locals on their farms and such. They were good guys. They were misled as young boys, but they served their time in jail for what they did. They went on to make decent lives for themselves. John Blymeyer got released and his family was in agreement he would do it again. I'm not sure how his life ended. I believe he died in the early 70s. I'm not mm -hmm. sure though. I don't think he ever got himself together. If you had to take a guess, what would you say ailed John Blymeyer? I would say if he were a 22 year old man today, he would probably be on the spectrum 
and he would probably be schizophrenic or paranoid schizophrenic. That would be my guess based on what little we know of him, but he spent time in an institution. They didn't have the same diagnosis back then that we, oh, the same understanding absolutely. that we did. So I would say he was somebody who needed help, intervention at an early point in his life, and he just didn't get it. What do you attribute to the house not burning when they set it on fire? Probably just incompetent. Some people think God intervened. Some people think his powwow powers protected him. Likely they were just in a panic because they didn't intend to kill him. And they were just like, crap, set it on fire, run, let's get out of here. But that kind of situation, I'm thinking an incompetence. <laughs> and you said the house is still standing. Yes, it is. Now, the owner, the grandson, he doesn't want anybody there. People drive around, they think it's haunted, they see ghosts and devil dogs and everything else. I think that's all nonsense. I think he just wants to be left alone, quit lurking around the house. He has it all boarded up, he has cameras there. He doesn't want us there. Can you blame him? <laughs> I still go there though, <laughs> every once in a while. <laughs>